Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to the worry, number three in the Endgame series. Uh, the last uh, episode we had with James Aitken, um, uh, as those of you listened to it will know, was uh, an extraordinary conversation. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, please do download it. Um, and we have another conversation for you this week with uh, a good friend of mine, someone that uh, Bill has been looking forward to meeting for the first time. Uh, and that's Mike Green of Logica Advisors. Uh, I first met Mike about, uh, I guess, four years ago um, when we sat and I interviewed him for Real Vision. And at the end of the hour long, I mean, I I just, my my jaw was on the floor at, at just how brilliant this guy was um, and, and what a great guy he was. And, and I've, I've tried to spend as much time in his orbit as I can since then, because uh, as you're about to find out, he's he's an extraordinary intellect. So without any further ado, let's uh, let's bring him in. Mike, welcome. Hey, Grant. Mike, when we, Bill and I decided to do this thing, right, we just figured, let's, let's just have a few conversations about the end game, what it might look like. Um, and literally, Bill said to me, the guy I want to speak to is Mike Green. You know him, right? Can we get him on? I said, I'm sure Mike will do it for us, but you know, I'll have to ask him nicely. I, I literally, I, I literally saw the title, the end game. And I'm like, Oh my God, I have no fucking idea. So, <laughs> right. Um, I, you know, this is going to, this is going to be interesting. It'll definitely be a free form exploration of some of the components. I mean, one of the challenges, and we'll talk about this is just, there are so many pieces that are moving right now. Yes. It is, it is almost impossible to definitively say in one form or another what's going to happen as we come into the end of this. Um, and that's the other thing that I think is really important. And it was actually, you know, uh, Bill, you and I have not had, had the pleasure of chatting before, but Grant has played a key role in many pivotal points in my life, um, whether he wants to accept it or not. He doesn't. But um, one, of the, uh, one of the things that I used to struggle with when I worked with Peter was Peter would always treat the world as if it was a chess match, right? Well, we have to be in the end game now. We have to be in the end game. And what I would always say to him, Peter, is it's not a chess game. There's not an end game, right? There is, like, there is no beginning game. There is no middle game. There is no end game, right? It just is. We are in this moment, and what happens next is what's going to happen next. Um, and I think that's a really hard thing. Like, everyone wants to know, well, how does this end? Like, it, well, it ends for you when you die, right? But for the rest of us, who knows, right? Yeah. Um, so it's going to be, it, 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 it's, but it's a fascinating topic to explore the possibilities that exist for the next couple of years. Well, I mean, interestingly, this, this the, the title, it was really, because you're absolutely right. What the end game we're talking about is the end of really this central bank preeminence, the end of that phase. So it's, it's kind of, you're right, it's the end of a phase um, rather than the end because you're right. The game just goes on forever, right? There's no, there's no winning it. There's no losing it. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I particularly was keen to be able to talk to you, Mike, was because, um, to me, w one thing that was part of the you know, this amorphous endgame was 
how long the central banks would get away, would be able to do what they've done. And I always looked at the way the markets had been distorted to my eye because of the policies of the Fed and the other central banks. And it, and so it, it, to me, it always, the, the end game always began and end what the feds were doing. And the only thing that would, can stop these policies would be a currency crisis or a currency problem or the bond market revolting, which are obviously big things, but they're very, you can't time them. They, they happen when they happen. <clears throat> but when I <clears throat> finally became aware of your work and I, I saw the paper that you were nice enough to send me and I, I went back and read, um, watched some interviews, I realized that the sort of the discovery for lack of a better way to call it that you that you had about how the the passive flows have sort of gotten to the point where they've trumped fundamentals in many ways um i thought wow this is a, an amazing adjunct to the same thing and so i was really um curious to learn more about you know how your framework deals with the world that we have <clears throat> And in particular, how you managed to make this discovery. I saw in the last interview what you had with you and your partner, it looked like circa 1995 to you, the world changed and you noted that it had to do with the Vanguard flows. My mind, it always was because that's when I thought the Fed became reckless. And now you've given, for me, you've given me a totally different way to think about it. So could you tell me, and I'm sure other people would love to know how you made that discovery and how it changed what you did or what you were doing and how you shifted it. I'm just dying to know that, that story. So, um, you know, it's actually really interesting and somewhat embarrassing that it happened as late in my career as it did, right? So uh, in 2014, I launched my, my first firm, a firm called Ice Farm Capital. And going into Ice Farm, I was, I was, you know, very much like everybody else uh, in the industry. You know, you tend to approach from the standpoint of, well, you know, gosh darn it, I'm just better looking and smarter than everyone else. And therefore, you know, I should be able to do what everybody else is doing just slightly better, right? And if you remember at the time, you know, it was very easy, as to have, very easy to have the sanctimonious sort of view that I would argue a lot of value investors have today, which is, you know, well, I've seen this movie before. We know how this plays out. People just aren't paying attention to the fundamentals, et cetera. And in particular, um, in the summer of 2015, and really from kind of December of 2014 through June of 2015, you saw this extraordinary rise in the Shanghai stock market. And um, it basically made the NASDAQ look like nothing, right? If you remember, the Shanghai functionally went up 500% over that time period. And it was in analyzing that market that I actually figured out what had happened in the U.S. markets. And so in that market, you had a situation in which money was incapable of flowing directly into China. And so that the way the large institutional uh, assets were being allocated to China was through futures in Singapore primarily. Those futures in Singapore would then try to replicate their position in A shares, right? And so they would actually put them, they would try to put money to work in a market in which there was an extraordinarily low float. And so many of the components of, of the, uh, the indices that were represented by the futures were relatively high market cap, but incredibly low float. In many cases, only 5% of the company was public. And so when the money tried to go in via the futures and into these names, we began to see this pattern that emerged where the individual securities would go limit up 
right? Because there was a 10% limit on which in each individual security in the Shanghai could move. The security would go limit up without a single transaction, but that limit would then be reflected in the price of the Shanghai. And so we actually built a program at a quant at the time, excellent guy who's now working, uh, uh, still in the industry, still working in New York. Um, but he built a model for us that allowed us to track each individual security that went limit up or limit down with no transactions. And at one point, over 15% of the Shanghai was going limit up with zero transactions. Wow. Right? And just did this day after day after day. The single biggest record was one single security went up 32 consecutive trading days <laughs> without a single <laughs> transaction, right? So 1.1 <laughs> to the 32nd power, right? I mean, rule of 72 tells you you got somewhere around five and a half doublings there, right? You're like it, over the space of 32 days, right? Wow. And uh, that was, for me, that was one of those things where I looked, so I'm like, oh my God this is what happened in the 1990s. And I went back and I looked at it. And while we didn't have the same limit up feature, we did have this characteristic of extraordinarily low floats where securities were attempted to be purchased in, in reflection of their market cap, right? And so if you go back and you look at those dynamics in the 1990s, what you discover is starting around 1995, the single best predictor of performance is what we used to call insider ownership yeah. or low float. <clears throat> Right. And so from the period from 95 to 98, that was the single best factor. Now, because that factor had strong correlation with technology, I, you had a higher proportion of insider ownership if you had relatively recently gone public. Right. Uh, um, that meant that the money actually began to flow into the technology space. The technology began to outperform dramatically. We didn't used to have factor portfolios. We didn't have an ETF that was the low float portfolio. We had technology funds and industrial funds and consumer goods funds, right? And because the technology funds had such greater representation of this low float dynamic, they began to outperform. They began to attract capital and that capital needed to seek a home, right? And that home was in the form of the companies that already existed in the technology space. And ultimately, you know, it led to the IPOs, which functionally were identical to what we saw in the 2004, 2005, 2006 time period with the RMBS and CLOs and CDOs, mm -hmm. right? Product was created for money flowing into a market. It's the exact same thing that we saw happen in the 90s, right? And so what it really wasn't until 2016 and, and um, uh, only about a year before I met Grant that actually these pieces really began to fall together Right. And then I really began to understand what had really happened in the 1990s. And I think that's, you know, Mark Twain has the, the famous expression, it's not what you know that gets you, it's what you know for certain that it just, it just ain't so, right? I mean, I think that's one of the hard parts about our business is that we go in and we are taught narratives and you don't question them. And, um, you know, if you, if you operate from false premises, then lots of things never fall into place. Right? I mean, if you believe that people are prone to feats of idiocy, because right? you saw it firsthand in 1999, or you saw the craziness in 2015 in the, in the Chinese stock market, and you want to believe, well, oh, the Chinese are just gamblers. Yeah. Right? I mean, remember that? <laughs> that mm -hmm. was the lexicon. The Chinese people, they're just gamblers, right? Um, well, what's happened since? They haven't done anything like that since. Right. So is it just, was it a short-term mania that took the country and, and led, or was it actually institutional investors trying to buy and not realizing the impact that they were having on the market. The second one seems so much more plausible to me. Right. 
Um, and so this, you know, this puts you into a challenging situation because then all of a sudden you start like, I, I talk about myself now, not, I would say 90% of what I do is detective work, right? My job, it's actually similar to what a short seller does, right? I mean, yeah. vast majority of your time is actually spent trying to figure out what the hell is actually happening as compared to, oh, well, you know, if I uh, extend out my weighted average cost of capital by three more decimal points, I can get a more accurate reflection of what the share price should be trading at today. I mean, that's just, that's what we spend all of our time learning in, in the industry, at least coming from the background that I had coming out of Penn and Wharton and stuff. And it's the least amount of time I spend today, right? I mean, I just don't, it's, you know, it used to, to laugh about Warren Buffett talking about he needed to be able to figure it out on the back of, of an envelope, right? Well, that's exactly what you should be doing with valuation, right? Because valuation is just mental preparation for yourself, right? You're just being prepared to deploy capital when the opportunity presents itself, whether that's in the British pound, because you think that there's unrecognized competitive features that exist in, in the UK economy, if XYZ or as simple as the cost of labor on a global basis falls because the currency has fall, fallen, I'm sorry, um, you know, that's what you're doing, right? And if you can't do it on the back of the envelope, if you need a giant machine and a giant spreadsheet to do the calculations to tell you something that simple, right, then you're probably misplacing your effort. So when it was 2016 and you had this magnificent aha moment, did what did you do? I mean, how I, I imagine you're set up differently now than you probably were. It sounds like you, and from what I've listened to other things you've said, you, you came from the value school, so to speak. And it's, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not where you are today. <laughs> uh, well, if you've read any of our recent pieces on value, <laughs> yes, you'd, you'd figure out fairly quickly that that's the case. So, I mean, again, value is one of these things um, that you're taught something, right? You're taught mm how to do something, right? Here's how you do a DCF. My first company um, was a firm called Value Add Software Solutions and was actually valuation software that was built uh, in the 1990s, initially marketed to corporations and then ultimately to the buy side. Um, and it was literally designed to offer different valuation techniques, you know, theoretically sound valuation techniques that you could plug in the numbers and get lots of different sensitivity analysis, et cetera, around how much something was actually worth. Um, as I said, that's all, I spent almost no time doing that today, right? I mean, the follies of youth, you know, some, some spend it on women, wine, and song, and others spend it on computer programming. But, um, you know, the, the simple reality is that when you do that type of work, what you're really trying to do is prepare yourself so that very quickly you can make assessments. And as we moved into that period of, of 2015, 2016, like things just stopped making sense. And so I had to go back and, and, and create a different either narrative or a different story that explained why the dog didn't bark, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was incredibly fortunate coming out of 2016 in that I met um, or re-met Peter Thiel um, and explain some of my theories to Peter. Um, at the time, I was much more focused on the dynamics of what happened when everybody sold. And so this is one of these things, it's, a, you know, it's, it's like forecasting the weather, right? If you're missing one little piece, if you miss that butterfly flapping its wings in the Amazon, you're not going to get all the pieces coming together. And so you know, I recognize the criticality of the role of passive, and the role of this increased correlation, all of that work was done at that point. Um, but my focus was primarily on the flows out, 
And yeah, the, yeah. the idea that the direction would turn against us, particularly as the baby boomers began to leave. Um, now, the reality is that it's a more complex story than that, right? Because when we talk about passive as this monolithic element, right, that it's 40% of the market or 43% is my current estimate in terms of market cap. Um, it's very heterogeneous in terms of its distribution, right? It's not uniformly held at 40%. And the reality is, is that those under the age of about 40 have an extraordinarily high level of passive ownership, and they're the ones that are buying, right? And those over the age of 65, who are the ones that are selling, really those over the age of 70, they actually have quite low passive penetration. It's between 15 and 20% for those over the age of 65. Um, and as a result, what we're actually seeing is discretionary managers being sold, non-discretionary or passive investors being bought. And that inflation is extraordinary and exponential in its power, right? Um, you know, uh, and like, again, like, you know, a really good detective holds on to little pieces of information, right? You know, whether it's in a notebook Ultimately, I find written, you know, writing something down and then forgetting where I wrote it tends to be the most effective way yeah. of remembering this sort of so. stuff, right? There's the, the connection in your, in, in your brain that's created by that process of writing. Um, I never know to, you know, it's not like I can go back and look at my notebook from, you know, November of 2016 and say, okay, well, this is exactly, you know, where I remember doing this. Um, but what you, you do is, you know, you grab the little pieces, right? Those little tiny pieces of information. Um, and, you know, so one of the things that had always stuck in my mind is this idea of cash on the sidelines, right? And um, many years ago, Mike Shedlock, who I think you both know as well, mm -hmm. um, of the, the Mish Global Economics blog, he wrote a really good piece talking about the nonsense about cash on the sidelines, right? You know, the cash doesn't change. There's always a buyer and a seller, right? Well, that's actually perfectly true. There is always a buyer and seller, right? And yet the cash levels do change, right? So we see the amount of cash on the sideline change. Well, what you're actually capturing there is the fact that cash has no variance, right? So day to day, it doesn't change in price, but the securities do change in price, right? And so if you're, what you're actually seeing in markets is not a measure of a stock or even a flow, right? What you're actually looking at is, is history, right? It is not where you can transact. When you see a price on a screen, it's not where you can transact. It's where somebody last transacted, right? And the, it's an assumption that that next transaction is continuous with that. Now, March was a fantastic example where we got to see lots of discontinuous price action, mm -hmm. right? Things that moved in a way that, that, that wasn't a, you know, single tick step from the last price. Um, you know, that is actually where it becomes really powerful and really interesting to think about how the individual actors behave. And so, you know, went back into my misspent youth and started to build models that said, hey, what happens if I actually take the rules of passive construction and have those players transact against discretionary players that operate under a different set of rules? And Grant may remember um, I utilized the, my connections at uh, Real Vision to run a survey of investors. And to my knowledge, nobody had actually ever done this, right? And, um, you know, actually went out and surveyed investors and said, what's your propensity to buy or sell given valuations? And asked them the question, you know, at one times PE, 
right? On a Schiller type normalized valuation, what's your propensity to buy securities on a new inflow? Well, unsurprisingly, it's 100%, right? So everyone's going to buy at one times earnings. Well, what is it at five times, 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, 100 times, right? And what you get is a chart that very simply slopes down. It's a, you know, um, polynomial chart, but it, it basically says people have a high propensity to buy at very low valuations and a low propensity to buy at very high valuations. You asked the same question about redemptions, right? What's your propensity to meet redemptions? Well, we all went through this in 2008, right? Nobody wanted to meet redemptions. People gated their funds rather than giving their funds, giving the, the assets back to their investors when prices were so ridiculous, right? I'm not going to liquidate my credit fund and sell teenies, you know, one, you know, one point, two point, three point uh, bonds because the option value of those is just so high. I'm not going to give you your capital back, right? Gating your fund. That's the extreme version of it, right? So those are the rules of discretionary managers. But what are the rules of passive? Well, it's, it's literally, you guys have heard me say this over and over again, and it's, it's simple and it's elegant and it's surprising that it came from me, but it's, you know, it's just incredibly powerful to realize that passive says, if you give me cash, then buy. I'm buying, yeah. If you ask for cash, then sell. Well, what price? Whatever price I can get, right? it doesn't matter. Right? Because the presumption is every price is the right price. Right. And that's just insane. I mean, it really is. It's <laughs> totally insane. We know it's untrue. There's a fantastic um, interview of Jim Simons that was actually just published. Um, and I'll send a link to you, Grant, so you can include it. Because I really think it's one of these things that like, everybody should see. You know, Jim goes straight on to the efficient market hypothesis and just says, look, this is complete crap. It's totally not true. Right, and then proceeds to spend the next twenty minutes talking about the complicated, you know, the complicated component of Renaissance is not actually the the algorithms for how to buy something, right, or what to buy. The complicated part of Renaissance is the algorithm of figuring out how they are impacting the market as they behave, right, as they respond to their models, signals, and buy, and understanding the you know, very complex problem of how do I influence a system that I'm participating in? Yeah. Well, I have an extraordinarily high degree of confidence that Renaissance at 75 billion in total capital and only about 15 billion in the medallion fund, 10 billion, I guess. If they're so focused on that, then what should be happening at Vanguard and BlackRock? And I know for a fact that they don't do that. They don't do it, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because um, even on a, on a, individual basis I, I remember talking to to a friend of mine lee robinson about this uh, four or five years ago and we got to talking about the differences between professional investors and for want of a less pejorative word amateur investors and he and he said he said that that professionals know how to sell and and, and and amateurs don't know how to sell or when to sell but they don't know how to sell and so it's interesting to hear you talk about that as the buying side of it is no problem because it never is, right? There's, there's always an offer. There's always an offer, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Someone will make you an offer in that stock. But it's really knowing when to sell and being able to sell when markets get dislocated and people gate funds and spreads widen and people say no bid, that it, it creates huge problems. Well, you know, you and I in our conversation back in December of 2016 had an interesting conversation, right? Many of the people that last in an industry tend to come in relatively close proximity to um, a, a, you know, catastrophic event, right? They see the craziness that can actually happen in a market, right? And as a result, 
they are perpetually um, terrified. Uh, <laughs> well, terrified or maybe aware is the yeah, way I would oh, use I, it, right? But yes, uh, um, and you know, uh, Leon Levy has a has a phenomenal book. People always ask me for books, right? I mean, um, one of the best books you can ever read is Leon Levy's The Mind of Wall Street, right? Um, and he talks about the fact that when he was building Oppenheimer in the 1940s, you know, he actually made a very conscious choice to hire nobody who had had any experience, nobody who had lived through the 1930s, right? Because he just didn't want people who were afraid. Yeah. Right. You hear the same thing from Stan Druckenmiller. Druckenmiller he yeah. was handed handed the reins in the 1970s, and they, he, you know, his boss said, "You're not the most skilled. You're not the most talented. You're not certainly not the smartest guy here, but you are the youngest guy here, and as a result, you don't have the battle scars that everybody else yeah. has." And as a result, you know, you're the guy to lead us through this, right? Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting you use the phrase, you know, the difference between the amateur and the professional, right? Um, I would also just say that, you know, I, I see this very specifically in youth. And I think it's a very powerful feature. Um, but I also think that it, that it is a perfect example of the challenges that we're going to have, right? So for many years, I've run a strategy that I call quality junk. Right. And I'm effectively trying to buy stocks that have, you know, a very high quality component to them, in particular in terms of reduced levels of leverage, reduced levels of volatility in the stock market. And part of the reason why I do that um, is because momentum is a strategy that rewards low volatility. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You know, if you just think about the the simple math of something going up 10 percent and then down 10 percent, well, it's actually down one percent. And if money is continually flowing into a passive strategy, that is allocating on the basis of market cap, that high volatility, that volatility drag that results becomes a negative momentum contributor, right? Um, And on the other side of that, junky companies tend to have relatively high volatility in part because a significant portion of their capital structure is on the credit side, right? So the equity is truly a residual and can move with, you know, a tremendous amount of volatility. when I worked with a young person who had a similar strategy, he called this the cigar stub strategy, right? He basically was trying to, to go short nearly bankrupt securities, right? Now, anyone who's done this for a very long period of time knows that that strategy can't work, right? Because the cost to borrow those securities is yep. extraordinarily high, right? Mm-hmm. And as I pressed him on it, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't have any problem borrowing these securities. I'm sitting there like, oh, that can't possibly be true, Right. And sure enough, he was right. And what I hadn't realized, and this is, you know, this is the sort of thing that, again, is the benefit of being around young people. It's one of the reasons Peter Thiel constructs his organization the way he does, where you know, I was a dinosaur and, and many other people were much, much younger. Um, because that naivete, that, that inability to say with experience, well, I'm not going to look at this strategy because I know it doesn't work, yeah. often blinds you to changing market structure. And so this is to uh, answer Bill's earlier question about, you know, how do you put these pieces together? Well, this is another piece of the puzzle, right? Because what you discover is that the reason he was not having trouble borrowing is because Vanguard and BlackRock had become so large and because they don't make money, and none of us make money running a zero basis point or a three basis point fund, right? In terms of management fees, the way they make money is by lending out their securities. Right? And so it causes a security to go special. It's just like a commodity, right? It passes a pinch point in which the quantity that is demanded is in excess of the quantity that is supplied. 
But when you have someone like BlackRock or Vanguard who has to lend out everything they possibly can in order to create profits off of zero management fee products, right? The supply of securities available to lend is extraordinarily high. I know it's a terrible idea to be borrowing and lending out these securities because yeah. they benefit from the same general lift that everybody else has in uh, you know, a passively driven market, right? The Vanguard total market index basically buys every security out there, right? It's got the largest inflows of any vehicle that exists. Um, but if you want to borrow it, they'll lend it to you very, very cheaply, right? And so his strategy was an extreme version, was the tail version of my quality junk. And it worked extraordinarily well until un unfortunately experienced uh, tremendous problems in the February, March time period. And in part because he hadn't actually understood exactly what was happening and exactly why this mattered, et cetera, right? That's, this is part of the dynamic to explain this long-winded diatribe, right? So if he had come in through a crash environment instead of coming in yeah. through a massive bull market, he might have run that, that strategy with less leverage. He might have been willing to detune it and not try to maximize his P&L. Right, and understand that the five-year history that he was looking at was far from indicative of everything that could happen to that. Right, so in that momentum unwind that occurred in April and May, like that strategy just got destroyed. Right. Um, so if if I can uh, try to pin you down a little bit more, so as so as 2016, you've figured this important thing out. Um, what would your portfolio have looked like generically, say six months before you really crystallized this? And then how did it look six months later? And, and what sort of intellectual gymnastics did you have? I mean, how did that go? So the, the biggest change that happened and the single biggest, um, it, the, 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 the one thing that I recognized that I had been doing wrong, right? Um, I had for a very long period of time sought out expensive areas of volatility to sell and cheap areas of volatility to buy. Um, and suddenly I found myself recognizing that if the surface was curved, right? I mean, this is, the, the you can think of the impact of something like passive on a theoretically efficient surface, like a massive body, right? It creates a gravitational frontier and bends, Right now we're, we're, we're getting off into the hippy-dippy sort of stuff, but you know, it bends the surface. It literally changes the return surface in the same way that a massive body changes the path of light right? okay. through, through gravitational forces. And the minute you recognize that, you recognize that optionality is not properly being priced because the assumptions that go into the pricing of options under the efficient market hypothesis, which actually, unlike many other aspects, sits at the core of all option pricing models, right? Uh, you know, risk-neutral arbitrage requires the, the efficient market hypothesis to be true, right? And that's how all options are manufactured. That's how it's done on a, it's measured on a regulatory basis. What you suddenly recognize is that options no longer behave in the way or no longer should be priced in the way that they had historically. You need to actually toss out a Black-Scholes model entirely and understand that what you're accessing is non-recourse leverage on a curved surface, and it sounds very mathematical and, and, and very full of nonsense, but you can, you can visualize it. The minute you recognize that curve, you understand that that doesn't work within, with an EMH type framework, right? Um, and so my portfolio became straddles, right? I, I was always long calls. I was always long puts. 
Right. And where I made mistakes in my portfolio, it was, it was expressing too much directionality. Right. Right. Um, and again, this goes back to, you know, the conversations that I would have with Grant is I was, I was looking at the sources of volatility selling where people were providing me with those options even back then. Right. And, you know, crazily enough, I've run long vol portfolios since December of 2016 in an environment in which until, you know, basically the middle of 18, like that was a death sentence. And, um, you know, was fortunate to, to run it in a way because I maintained both upside and downside exposures, recognizing that this curvature led to both inflation and immediate collapses, uh, that I was able to make it through that time period, right? And now things are obviously leaning much more in my favor. So did, did the actual security analysis, however you went about it, I mean, that had to have some factor. Uh, it couldn't just have been proper weighting of, of, the, of, your, of, the, of the straddles, uh, or, or could it? Um, so, so the irony is, is that you, over the past several years, you could have gone as far as saying, I'm just going to buy shorter dated straddles on the S&P, and you would have actually gotten paid for that, for that strategy, right? Um, you guys at Cornerstone Macro, they have an options crew that has demonstrated this. Um, I demonstrate it in slightly different ways. But for the past several years, you've been actually paid to own options. And I, I would suggest that this is part of what you're seeing in the explosion in call buying by many in the retail sector, right? They don't do things that haven't worked, right? They're now piling into this space. Now, I, I, I think the way it's being done, at least the way I'm seeing it be done, um, is not necessarily the right way to do it. But it, it's, a, it's a very simple strategy that historically has been disastrous, right? We're all familiar with the phrase, 85% of options expire worthless and they all lose money. Like those statistics are, are broadly just not true anymore. Yeah, because there's, there's, so, many, there's so many on the flies, you know, on the wings that, that, you know, don't have any real meaning anyway, most of the time. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, if I'm forced to purchase a down 20% put on a continuous basis to, to you know, reduce the amount of capital that I need to hold to my portfolio, I'm not actually, this is, you know, to the Nassim Taleb point, right? I'm not actually evaluating whether or not that down 20% put is the right price. Right. And I'm saying, okay, well, if I'm going to run my business, I have to own that down 20% put. Right. And so this has been part of the pushback that I've had for years against the strategies that try to buy these extreme tails, because there's so much capital out there that is actually focused on the need to hedge from a regulatory standpoint that I actually think a lot of the skew and stuff that we're seeing is telling you that those legs are often overpriced. I mm-hmm. tend to find the at the monies and the, and the nearer shoulders to be much, much cheaper, which is theoretically what they're selling, right? Mm-hmm. Mike, you, br- you brought up, you brought up um, obviously, the, 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 the kind of dislocations we've seen recently and this massive uh, jump in, in put-to-call ratios um, and this huge kind of swarm into options. A lot of that has been um, placed at the feet of quote unquote the Robin Hood crowd retail uh, you know, going back to the the 99 days when we saw this phenomenon what what has that change to the market structure done for you have you gone back and looked at what happened in the late days of the dot-com bubble to see how this might end because we're seeing you know this the, the talking about your c- cigar stubs trade uh, buddy what what he would have made of Chesapeake and Hertz and all these other things obviously they would have just carried him out on a stretcher 
But is this just a moment in time or does any of your backtesting suggest that there is a specific path that this is going to take that will look familiar? Well, I, I haven't seen his portfolio, but at least at last check, he was long. It was short Chesapeake and Hertz. So, okay, um, it, you know, the, that, that's exactly the point on this type of, of uh, dynamic, right? Um, so I think it's interesting because I think that um, the role of Robinhood is overstated, at least on my analysis and much of this. And, and I'm cautious because I do think it does play a role, right? There's absolutely no question that if, if um, single stock options are purchased significantly out of the money um, in an environment in which prices are largely inelastic, the dealers themselves, as they hedge those options that they've sold, can have the unintended consequence of forcing that price up, increasing their delta, and therefore they have to buy even more to hedge. And I think that that's actually a primary explanation of what has happened with things like Hertz and Chesapeake, where the prices soared, even as the securities themselves were bankrupt, right? Um, the second thing I think obviously that contributed there is that you had um, many distressed credit investors, their strategy often inv involves buying the debt and shorting the equity, right? With their analysis giving them comfort that the equity is worthless, there's uncertainty around the recovery in the debt and you'll use part of the profits from shorting the equity to offset that, right? Well those best laid plans and, and professional insights often fall apart when you're tapped on the shoulder by your risk managers as well. I'm, I'm thrilled that you decided to buy Chesapeake bonds thinking that they have a recovery of 65 cents, but you're also now short this equity that you shorted at $1.25 that has gone to 6.50, right? Um, and so all profits are gone. Clearly you don't know what you're doing and we can't take the risk uh, on this position, right? And, and I think that's, I've talked about this with a couple of other people. I mean, one of the biggest challenges when you look to empirical finance and the idea that contained in those prices is the story of what happened in the past, right? And you, you have no idea why somebody transacted, right? Did they, mm -hmm. did they transact because a risk manager tapped them on the shoulder and said, I, I don't care what your GCF says, yeah. right? I've got a stock that's moved against us for 400%, like take the position off now. Well, that was, that was that's precisely when I was running my short only fund, this is precisely why I stayed away from those kind of broken stocks that would get down to those levels where you knew they were going to go to zero. But people don't appreciate the risk management required to actually yeah. to have enough to of them sure on the matter. Yeah. yeah. So I just basically said, I'm not doing that just because it was too hard. And so that that kind of makes me think about, you know, your your cigar butt f fellow that, you know, it was working. He didn't quite know what he might have known had he seen a different part of the cycle. So as it applies to how you make all of this work, when you see something change, do you have to like, w when we got into the bumpy period, to, for lack of a better expression, earlier this year, did do you have to tweak how you weight different variables to, to capture this passive uh, uh, factor or does how does the does the risk management take care of itself or do you have to say aha i got to do something different how how do you how do you manage that piece of the equation so nobody has 100% of the answers right I, I, or at least if they do i haven't been introduced to them right <laughs> um and um you know so so we are constantly aware that there are changes to how we have to manage our portfolio um 
one of the greatest gifts that I've actually had in joining Logica is just that for the very first time in my career, I have a true partner and, and somebody who I'm truly, uh, who, I, who I, I, you know, can't think of a better peer to exchange these types of ideas with. We come at things, Wayne Himmelstein is just absolutely brilliant. Um, we come at things from a completely different perspective, 90% of the, you know, 99% of the time. And yet we arrive at almost the exact same conclusion, you know, close to the, close to the same percentage. Right. Um, and so, you know, he spent his entire year in math and quant and I spent my, his entire career, I'm sorry, in math and quant. And I spent my entire career on the discretionary side. Um, and, you know, I recognized as I went through the 2016, 2017, 2018, and, and into 2019 markets, that um, one, my traditional process, which had allowed me to seek out the best values and the best expressions by looking on a global basis and saying, what is the purest representation of what I'm looking for, that that began to be almost a burden, right? Because if the core of the problem is the growth of passive in the United States, then hey, you know what, you got to focus on equities in the United States. The Japanese yen is an interesting story. And there are, I mean, I, I still today, uh, you know, look at aspects of different markets that I've traded and say, oh my God, I wish I could have, you know, exposure to that. But the simple reality is, is when you find something this big, you just have to focus, right? And you just have to say, look, I want to own this story and I want to own this situation. Um, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a flattering experience. Um, uh, I, I sat down with Seth Klarman and presented my stuff. And, and uh, at the end of it, Seth said, you know, Mike, you know, this story ends with you dying, right? And I said, what? And he goes, I know it's a dark story, but like that wasn't quite what I was expecting you to say. It's like, well, if, if you're correct, you end up with all the money and everyone is going to kill you. Um, and <laughs> that's great. But I, I, you know, one, I don't think that's quite true. Um, uh, but it's flattering to have you think that, can I have some of your money? Um, and, um, there, there, there absolutely is a component of that, right? I mean, this problem is so big and so huge that I just have to focus on it. The second thing is um, recognizing that the way we construct our portfolios, um, we treat it, and I use this analog, you know, this analogy all the time. I tell people, you know, it's like we've walked into a casino. We've discovered that the roulette wheel is imbalanced, and it comes up black 55% of the time now, right? Now, if it came up black 100% of the time, the casino would immediately take that roulette wheel out, yeah. right? Because this right. is like, okay, this is so obvious. There's something really wrong here. But if it's coming up 55% of the time, well, statistically, we know there's going to be periods where that goes for an extended period of time across an entire casino. It's not going to matter all that much, right? If you're going to bet at that roulette wheel, you can't adopt a strategy that says, I'm going to go 100% black every single time because you're going to be wiped out right? 45% of the time it's going to come up red yeah. and that's the end of your game. So you have to do some variant of Kelly betting that says, I understand what my odds are. I understand how I've improved my odds relative to the construction of the game. I have an edge and therefore I'm going to build a particular strategy. And so for us at Logica, that means that at any point of the portfolio, we're only betting about 20%, right? And if we're only betting about 20%, that means that we need to seek leverage. And that's, that's actually what options provide in my model, right? So if you think about that curved space, 
if you're going to move into a curved space, you need something that is in turn curved itself Self, and that yeah. can provide you with leverage, right? And that leverage has to be non-recourse because if I use recourse mm -hmm. leverage mm -hmm. and I'm wrong, then I can get wiped out just as easily, right? Well, that's, that's what we're thinking about in the option space. That's how we treat it, right? So I'm looking for that non-recourse leverage both to the top side and to the downside. Um, and so our portfolio naturally changes by virtue of how expensive those bets are, right? We're never betting that much more, right? Um, but that, you know, so, so many of the adjustments happen naturally. And, and we actually wrote about this in our March letter to investors. Um, you know, when you see the VIX print 85 and implied correlations at 100%, basically, um, you know, I, I, I literally put it in my letter. Like that's the, the universal symbol for the shrug, you know, emoji, right? Like, I don't know, right? You know, 85, 85 volt. I don't know what you think. I mean, I don't know. Um, and so to shout at somebody who's saying, I don't know, you know, to shout you're wrong is like just a silly response, right? It reminds me of uh, many of the protests that are going on. Right? I don't know. Well, you're wrong, right? Um, like that's, it's, it's a meaningless discussion. And so um, our process naturally actually takes down exposures even more when things get that crazy. And so, um, you know, when you're running a long volatility position, if volatility gets to that level, you kind of just naturally have to say, I'm going to de-risk, right? Because the okay. asset class that I'm long now, basically everyone is saying sure. I need it in some way, shape or form. That's not a great time to be building and stocking your warehouse, right? Uh-huh. Um, and then the last thing, of course, is that, um, you know, as we, as Wayne and I collaborate and look at the environment that has come through, and I mean, obviously, I would have preferred to have gone into this with $5 billion in assets under management, because performance, you know, we've been very fortunate. Um, but in the absence of that, like, this has been just an extraordinary experience where things that we had designed and built our portfolio for that had never happened before suddenly happened repeatedly over the course of a couple of months, right? Yeah. And basically things that we had, had built into our portfolio as, well, we think that this will probably eventually happen, suddenly happened. And now people are turning, you know, part of the reason why people see me around so much is because people are turning to me and saying, hey, you had an explanation for this. You know, can you explain to us what happened? And, um, you know, we were very fortunate that that occurred early in the, the product life cycle at Logica, um, and now it obviously becomes a, a function of capitalizing on that. But it also means that we've seen things that we hadn't seen before. And so that drives Wayne and I into research and collaboration mode where we're forced to say, okay, how would we treat something different? Um, it, you know, given a second stage, what happens from here? And so that's been very, very powerful to have somebody I can collaborate with in that manner is candidly not something I've really had before in my career. And it's, it's an extraordinary resource. So, so basically the way your process works, I can see the, the, the sort of the, the risk uh, control sort of, I don't want to say solves itself. That's too simplistic, but there's an element to that. So, I mean, I get totally what you just, just said. How do you go about then selecting the, the, the securities in the portfolio or, 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 the, or do you use factors to, uh, to, try to, uh, to try to decide, okay, what things do we want to have positions in? Well, despite Wayne's many years in quant, I now force him to read 10Ks and 10Q. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so, so we use factors, but we, 
you can broadly think about the long portion of our portfolio, at least as, as traditionally aligned with momentum. And the reason why is because the, the dominant force in passive is momentum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I choose how much to allocate to something, right? I, well, I allocate however much its current market cap is. How did its market cap get there? Well, it either went up or it went down. So if it goes up, I'm allocating more capital to it. If it went down, I'm allocating less capital to it, right? Um, that is a momentum reinforcing component. And as long as passive continues to grow, I think that we're only going to see episodic exposure to the value factor have any real meaning or value. Um, one of the collaborations that, that we had and one of the innovations we had was we recognized coming out of an event like March that you were likely to see some of those momentum characteristics reverse in part because people had gotten overly confident that they could short the junk or the cigar butts, right? And so part of the behavior that you actually saw with the Chesapeake's and the Hertz's is once their short interest began to pass 40%, which is roughly the supply that's available from the Vanguard and Blackrocks, they began to go special. And suddenly something that had cost 3 or 4% to borrow moved to 100 plus percent, yeah. right? Well, shorting something at 100% borrow rate is, even though it's, that's an annualized rate, and so you're not actually shorting on that basis, it has a very different picture than shorting right. something at a 3 or 4% borrow, right? Um, and so again, like I, I can almost directly paint a line to the role of Vanguard and BlackRock in the debacle of, of these short interest names. We actually write about this in, uh, in the third piece of our value series. Mike, let me, let me ask you, how, how do you, in such a noisy environment as we have right now, you know, when you and I have talked in the past and, and when I listen to you again now, it, it always fascinates me because it's almost as if you have to physically stop yourself thinking about the future. It's almost as if there's a, there's a point past where that actually becomes detrimental to your strategy. Because if you think about it too much, you're going to come up with a really smart idea about what might happen. And then you're not going to allow the strategy to do its thing. You might try and you know, get around that or circumvent it. Is that, am I right? And, and if so, how do, you, how do you do that? Because I, I know how smart you are. And I know how inquisitive you are about the world around you. That must be a really tough thing to do. Um, so it, it is very tough not to be interested in all things at all times. And I think that's actually, um, trying to think about how to say this, uh, properly. Um, that recognition that you heard me talk about before that the problem is so big and that there's so much opportunity in this one space and that I can't distract myself with what's going on around me. Um, that's a skill set that I think belongs to the old for the most part or the, or the incredibly talented young, right? Um, and so Peter Thiel obviously had that with the PayPals and to a certain extent with the investment in Facebook. Um, I would argue that Jeff Bezos demonstrated that by leaving D.E. Shaw and you know, going all in on the idea of an online bookseller that only he saw that the first piece of this was, no, this is a compact, dense value that I can easily mail and therefore service over the internet. Um, but this creates the platform that I can use to do everything over the internet, right? That, that sort of focus belongs either to those who are, you know, approaching the end of their career and are like, okay, look, I got to take this shot. Yeah. Um, or to those who are incredibly young and in, in incredibly, incredibly skillful in a way that I probably never was. Um, but I, I have to do that. Right? Right. I just, I, like, I just have, you know, I have to. And, in the same manner, it's actually quite liberating 
you know, for the first time in my life to sit here and, and be able to say, I don't, I, you know, man, I'm not following the end on a day-to-day basis other than understanding the dynamics of flows um, and how money coming from abroad or going abroad is influencing my core thesis, right? Um, that's an incredibly liberating feeling um, in a lot of ways, right? I mean, you, you've known me long enough to know, like, it, you send me an email typically at two o'clock in the morning and I'm going to respond, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. It's not because your email is so particularly important to me as much as like, I probably was just awake checking to see what's happening in Japan or the, or the UK or whatever else, right? I mean, I spent... You know, the better part of 20, I actually wrote about this on Twitter. I spent the better part of 20 years thinking that uh, I was just so interested and so into my job that uh, I couldn't sleep through the night. And it turns out I had sleep apnea and, uh, you know, I was waking myself <laughs> up and then creating a narrative for why I was awake. Um, but that is, that, that is a luxury that I have right now. Yeah. That I can focus on this one thing. Obviously, this passive is a powerful factor to... to I have a gift for understatement. Um, and um, it, it, it it's sort of self-fulfilling, uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're in, if it's a nine-inning game, we're, we're not in the beginning. I'm assuming we're in the middle somewhere. And I, I can see how this can go on rather indefinitely. Have you given any, but as we both know, something, this is the irony, is, is something where, where, where the, the concept is flawed, but it's working well, has worked well, looks like it should keep working well. How do you carry those thoughts around in your head? And, and I know you probably don't worry about how it would end, but you must have given some thought to how long this can go on. So, so this is actually part of the irony for me when people jump on, you know, Davy 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 Day Global Trader, Davy Global Day Trader, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, you know, like there there is genius in the innocence, right? Which is this idea that stocks only go up, right? Um, if I didn't carry the concern about the end game, you know, the simple I've I've told people this statistic, and it sounds kind of silly, but you know, if you think about the simple math of what happens when you move from a, a world that's 100% discretionary and discretionary investors carry about 5% cash, right? It's historically been about the level. It used to be a little bit more than that in the 90s. It was about 9%. Uh, early 90s was about 9%. To a world in which it's dominated by passive investors who carry on average about 10 basis points of cash, right? Like the staggering math that you go through is you realize that moving from a 5% cash holding universe to a 0.1% holding universe causes the market to go up 50 X. Yeah. Wow. Right? Like that's the only wow. way it works, right? Cause the cash is neither created or n- nor destroyed. Right. And so given that naivete, Hey, yeah, I, I actually think, you know, uh, Dave Portnoy is onto something when he says stocks only go up. Right. Cause 50 is a big number. Yeah. Right. Just from switching from one group of holders to another group of holders. And that group of holders is basically set in stone. Now, the problem with that is that simultaneously, it also takes the volatility through the roof. Right. And so if you think about what happens when you're making that last move where you're going from 99.9% passive to 100% passive, what price change is required to get that last active holder to sell? Right? Like it's just, it, it's volatility like you can't even begin to imagine to the top side, right? But what happens if you are there, you're at 99.9% passive, 0.1% active, and for some reason, the passive decide to sell 1%, right? What happens to prices? 
Yeah. Limit down? I don't know. Beyond limit down. They, they yeah, literally yeah. There's no, there's no go to zero. Yeah, exactly. Right? There is no way you can actually, because that's what markets are, right? Markets are the solution for transactions. Mm-hmm. Price that you see is the intersection of supply and demand, not, not in some you know, uh, you know, theoretical sense, but it's the point at which buyers and sellers were able to meet and balance that book. Well, if there are no discretionary buyers that are capable of meeting the 1% redemption because they only have 0.1% of the capital, there's no price at which that market can clear except zero. Yeah. Right. And by the way, if it goes to zero, that 0.1% active guy, he's wiped out too. Yeah. Right. He, he's, you know, he, yeah, he doesn't right. matter how much cash he's holding. Right. And so, you know, the, that machine approaches limits far before it gets to that point. Right. The volatility becomes so extreme. I would argue this is what we saw in February, March. It's not that the passive players sold, which is what I was always concerned about. It's that they didn't buy anymore, right? So Uh, when the demand came to sell, when suddenly the discretionary managers who had convinced themselves that there wasn't going to be a recession in 2020 and that they therefore were massively underinvested going into August of 2019, right? When they recognized that there wasn't going to be a recession because the Fed had moved aggressively, the yield curve had stopped its inversion, everything was totally fine, right? And they plowed into the cyclical low quality stuff saying, okay, clearly the Fed has gotten ahead of this and we're going to be fine. When they tried to unwind that in February, March, there was no increase in demand from the passive investors because nobody said, hey, here's more money, right? They just bought what they were supposed to buy. And so you had an order imbalance that was caused by inattentive investors, people saying, I have no idea what you're saying to me. It doesn't make any sense. So Mike, what, what does it take? What does it take to reverse these flows? What does it take to, to change passive flows uh, into selling? Or, 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 or can that not happen, re- realistically speaking, because there's always money coming into this stuff? Because you, you would think, given the economic backdrop that we've got now, there would be people who would be switching those flows, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And, and given the Fed backstop, which is now literally, as they've said, unlimited, you, you can understand why this stocks will always go up mantra actually has some credibility to it. Well, as I said, right, I mean, there's not only does it have credibility, like that's actually true in this model. If you think the passive is going to continue to gain share, and and, and by the way, like I would just highlight, at no point in this did I mention the Fed, right? No, so, no, 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 absolutely right. Um, you know, if if that is correct, then perversely, as long as you can ride through that volatility, you want to be buying stocks, Right. But there's many simulations that I can run. And, you know, I was talking to Leon Cooperman about this, for example, right? And um, I said to him, I'm like, Leon, I don't think you understand. I realize it destroys my credibility to say this, but I have simulations in which the market goes to zero. And he's like, well, that just makes you sound stupid. And I'm like, well, you know, come, come March, all of a sudden, Leon was like, hey, Mike, <laughs> what do you think is going on? <laughs> um, and... He, we're not that far away from where my simulations start to say, no, you know, you can actually go to zero. Right. So, so would it be fair to say, Mike, that the active, if there's to be a trend change, albeit for five minutes or five months, the trend change almost has to be precipitated by these active guys. I mean, that's sort of stating the obvious, but since things have gone as they have for so long, perhaps they have to get extra agitated by some 
a bit of outside events, which is perhaps why it took so much what we would consider obvious negative news that piled up in February and March before it went splat. Uh, is that a, a good way to think about things, do you think? I think that's exactly the right way to think about it, right? Because you know, at the end of the day, prices are being set at the margin. The increasingly marginal investor is one of these passive target date funds. Um, the target date funds, people are, are genuinely um, shielded from the volatility of the market because they own an uncorrelated asset in the form of bonds, right? And so when the market falls and the Fed reacts to that fall in price by lowering interest rates, what's actually happening there is it's not that the Fed is printing money, but the Fed is printing collateral, right? So the price of the 30-year bond goes up. A portfolio that is, or a 10-year bond was actually the one that that really moved. When the 10-year bond goes up in price, a portfolio that is composed of 60% equities, 40% 10-year bonds has seen that 40% rise as the 60 has fallen. Mm -hmm. And they then need to rebalance by selling 10-year bonds and buying equities, Mm -hmm. right? If you're running a risk parity strategy, right, where you're running a levered expression of those bonds, right, well, your portfolio should have been largely protected. Where we actually saw the chaos, right, where things really broke, and this is you know, our, our portfolios, we actually use rates as a component of a, a, a non-volatility downside protection. You know, we looked at what was happening in the rates markets and recognized that, that the failure of run-in capital, when the Fed cut interest rates by 100 basis points, basically caused those who had sold call options in the euro dollar space to be liquidated, ah. right? They blew up. And so when you have a, an exchange liquidation that has to be settled by auction, Right? Nobody in their right mind is going to step ahead of that and say, okay, well, the next price is the price right next to this one, right? the continuous <laughs> price. Right? They're going to say, oh, I'm, I'm out of the markets until that clears. Yeah. Right? And so what happens? 10-year rates go from a buck 25 to 32 basis points. And that's what everybody focuses on. But the crazy part is three days later, it was back at 120. What killed people was the move from 32 basis points to 120 basis points. Because then everyone who had built their portfolios with rates being the hedge had their hedges destroyed. They moved in the opposite direction, right? Uh And that's where the real chaos happened, right? That then forced the risk parity guys to unwind, right? And as the risk parity guys are unwinding, the target date, I'm sorry, the target vol funds are unwinding as well because they've now realized levels of volatility that say, hey, you should never touch equities as an asset class. Oh my God, these are the riskiest things in the world, right? Let's get out of these things, right? Well, again, this is an incentive component, right? Why do we have target vol funds or vol targeting funds to to use the the right phrase, right? Well, we all talk about this, but nobody knows why they exist. I mean, do you guys have any idea why these things exist? Well, I mean, they've kind of grown up out of themselves because like everything, right? The strategy has worked really well and therefore successful vol targeting environments beget vol targeting funds so the answer is that is wrong um the reason that these things exist is because of structured products right and what a structured product is is a principal protection combined with participation to the upside right well how do you get that product what you're actually doing is you're buying a zero coupon bond Right? So I give you $1,000 and you're going to protect my 1000 bucks deliverable in five years and you're going to give me some level of participation in the S&P. So how do you actually structure that product? 
well, I buy zero coupon bond. Let's say interest rates are 2%, right? I've got five years. So that means I get to buy um, somewhere in the, on a thousand bucks, right? I would get to buy a $900 zero coupon bond that would then become worth $1,000 in five years, right? With that remaining hundred bucks, I go buy an option. How do I maximize the value of the option? Well, I construct a strategy that minimizes the level of realized volatility, right? So I say, okay, I'm gonna have a strategy that says every time vol rises, I sell. So as the option holder, I don't participate in that high volatility environment that reduces the price of the option and allows me to buy more participation. That's what a vol targeting strategy is actually doing. It's not that people are actually investing in the vol targeting strategy on a Delta one or a cash basis. Mm. It's that they underpin options. Interesting. Right. And so again, like this is the sort of thing that's going on that everybody is, you know, I think the technical term is bitching about this stuff, but laziness prevents us from digging in and understanding exactly why it exists. So you've said that, you know, um, it's like almost the, the Fed rate cuts don't matter in the sense that the, the, the rebalancing has an impact. And of course, for me, you know, the roads to all evil, you know, lead back to the Fed or start with the Fed or whatever. And I was just curious, this is more of an intellectual question than a what, how can we make money out of a question? To what extent do you think it, it, that if if rate cuts distort asset markets and if rates too low um, change the potential, obviously this wouldn't matter to passive purely, but change the the the, the price earnings ratio or price of sales people will pay for active guys will pay. How much do you think that Fed policy, if you will allow that it was slightly irresponsible or more than that, how much did that help fuel the if at all, help fuel the rise and the efficacy and effectiveness of the passive strategies? Is, is there any kind of twinning there of the two factors going together or does it not matter in your opinion? Um, so, I, well, I think everything matters, right? Uh, it's just a question of how is it actually influencing things, right? So the way the Fed thinks it works is through what's called the Euler coefficient, right? E-U-L-E-R, right? Which posits that people's propensity to consume is a function of interest rates. By lowering interest rates, you're reducing the incentive to defer consumption, right? You're reducing the incentive to save. Um, that's the hypothesis, right? All of the empirical data tells us the exact opposite, right? That the higher the interest rate, the higher the pressure to consume, um, the greater the, the input is. And uh, I'm actually in the process of writing a paper with Mark Blythe of Brown University on this dynamic of like what actually causes inflation? What does it actually mean? What drives a lot of the consumption behavior? Um, and, and this reliance on the Euler coefficient actually sits at the heart of all of these Fed models. And it, it's almost demonstrably inverse to reality. It's part of the reason why you hear me, why you heard me say, like what I think is actually happening is this is that the Fed is raising the collateral value of a portion of the, pro, of, of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, this behavior has obviously not been uh, the dynamic forever. And, and, and Bill, I, I sympathize with your interpretation as the mid 1990s, this time period where the Fed put emerged and you know, began this process. What the Fed put is, is, is literally the Fed deciding Okay, our primary concern is, is with the expectations channel and nothing 
captures the expectations channel better than financial markets, right? So I'm going to turn and look to financial markets to help me establish my policy, right? Well, if the Fed cuts interest rates, anytime asset prices, risk assets take a tumble, what they're actually doing is, is they're creating conditions for bonds to have a negative correlation mm -hmm. with risk assets, mm -hmm. right? And modern portfolio theory tells me that if I have an asset that has a negative correlation with risk assets, it has to, by definition, yield less than the risk-free rate, right? Otherwise, the solution set to modern portfolio theory moves from a backpack problem, 60-40 portfolios, to the optimal portfolio becomes a levered portfolio. And a levered portfolio, by definition, expands the demand for financial assets greater than the current level, right? You hear people talk about risk parity as offering protection. What they're really saying is, is that the 10-year bond has put-like characteristics to it, mm -hmm. right? And I'm being paid to own that put because it has a yeah. positive yield, right? If I hold it to maturity, I can't lose money, right? Well, if that exists, then the optimal portfolio becomes a levered portfolio. Now, where does that end? It ends when that asset no longer offers a positive yield, Right? So it doesn't matter what's happening to Boons. It doesn't matter what's happening to JGBs. The minute 10-year bonds in the United States offer a negative yield or are at zero, right, then you cease to actually have that positive carry put, and those portfolios have to collapse. Now, I don't, wow. know, I don't know if that's the end game, mm -hmm. but I think that's the end game. Do you think the Fed has, like, my opinion, the Fed is quite low. Um, I, I, I believe they, they, you know, they, they back into things and they react to things. Do, is your opinion, uh, that they actually understand this? And that's why it seems the fed is less interested in taking rates negative, unlike Europe. I mean, perhaps you and James have had this conversation. I don't know. So James and I have had this conversation. Um, I think James tends to agree, agree with me. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of actually sitting down one-on-one -on -one with a Fed governor. They're all very nice people, right? Um, not a single one that I've seen sprouts horns underneath their, their headgear. <laughs> um, you know, but in really simple terms, like to ask them to understand something that I just made you say wow to, right? Like that's not their job, Right, they're you know they've never traded a billion dollar portfolio, right? They've never actually seen this dynamic of, oh well, collateral went up in one portion of my portfolio, therefore I have increased risk taking capability, right. Right? right? right, like they understand what they were taught, right? And so I mean, interestingly, Jay Powell um, is one of the first Fed governors not to have the grounding in academics that allows him to have a fully formed opinion of what's going on, and so. Like my opinion of Jay Powell is he's basically just pressing buttons and, oh, that worked. Okay, let's press it again, right? You know, that works. Let's press it again, right? Like there's no core understanding of okay. anything that's going on. Um, and that's, you know, I, I, I've told my wife this many times. Like I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough through my career to have the chance to sit down with many of these individuals. And inevitably I come away saying, oh, my God, we are in so much trouble. <laughs> um, so... So, Mike, Mike, let me take you back just just quickly because we've, we've, we're keeping you a lot longer than I thought we were we'd going to. But um, when you talked about those simulations that could see the market go to zero and the fact that we are close, just just walk people through a couple of the variables that would have to be in place 
for that to happen obviously not a fully constructed one but just some of the things that perhaps you've you've got flagged as as pieces of that jigsaw that that you need to watch out for um so i mean the single biggest one is ultimately the liquidity right so so the challenge of of firms like vanguard and blackrock going as large as they are is um people tend not to think about uh the dynamic of how a trade actually make its way makes its way to the market right so if the three of us in this room are the only participants and we're all investing with vanguard and we're all buying right well then vanguard has net positive order flow it has to take out to the market and go and execute a trade right if I'm a seller, you're a buyer, Vanguard will cross us rather than actually have it go out to the market. The problem is, is when they get large enough in the market so that that net buying activity or even more concerning actually the net selling, selling activity yeah. right, becomes a quanta. You know, so use the, the, the physics or chemical term where you know, a, a pulse of light hits an atom and elevates the electron to that next thing where something actually happens. Right? If it goes high enough the photon will be re-emitted in the form of a particle of energy off of, off of the electron as it falls back down to a lower level. When that becomes large enough that the scale that then hits the market is incapable of being absorbed by the market, right, that's where chaos occurs. Right? And we don't know the form that that takes because right? we just haven't seen it. Like, yeah. Literally, I can count on one hand the number of weeks in its history where Vanguard has received net sell, net sell orders, right? Um, unfortunately, I think one of those is coming up, by the way, but um, I'm not going to uh, tip my hand too hard on that. Um, the second thing, I, I mentioned the role of the Fed, right? Well, the Fed has, a, in my opinion, a misplaced view of what they're doing. Right? They think that they're stimulating consumption, but what they're actually doing is stimulating collateral. Um, the minute that collateral just becomes another put, right? so it offers a negative yield or a zero yield associated with it, then those levered portfolios begin to collapse. This is my biggest complaint about risk parity. I think that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what they think they're doing. They're using a historical volatility stream a historical measure of returns in which all yields are positive to determine the volatility of an asset class. Right. Well, we know that fixed income, we know that credit is the same thing as writing a short put, right? The payoff mm-hmm. feature mm-hmm. is identical. And yeah. so all risk parity is, is basically the antithesis of the Nassim Taylor portfolio, right? Let's sell a whole bunch of out-of-the-money puts, right? How do I decide that the volatility is very well? Because we've never actually seen those puts go in the money, right? Well, if those puts go in the money, Right? Or more importantly, the demand for financial assets collapses because the levered portfolio no longer offers excess return with protection. Like, we have no idea what that looks like. Actually, I know exactly what it looks like. We just haven't seen it before. Yeah. Um, you know, you've, you've really certainly changed my thinking uh, since I've been aware of you know, your, your philosophy. Um, and the power of and, and the dominance of passive. I'd like to flip it around for a second and ask you a uh, question about active management. So I'm still in the dinosaur school of a- active management. Um, and so, but I've started to think about it more. Uh, so for instance, because of my view of the Fed, I'm bullish on gold and I think that gold mining stocks, you know, there's a lot of them that represent really good value if you look at it from a fundamental standpoint. 
And for the longest time, I couldn't figure out why they traded so poorly. And now I've come to incorporate your viewpoint and say, well, because there's only five people that care. And even though the markets move around on a daily basis because it's dominated by passive, um, there's not much passive that flows in there, although there are ETFs. So it's made me think it just as now it takes a bigger amount of conviction on the part of the active manager to do enough selling to upset the alpha cart, it probably likely is if you had a group that you felt like this, somebody else might make the case about another industry, it probably takes an even bigger commitment on the part of what's left of the active crowd to get the stuff to move because it doesn't really go with the flow of what's happening in passive. Am I thinking about that right? Or I mean, is, is, there, is there still hope for some of us? Yeah, no, I, unfortunately, I think that's the right way to think about it. Um, it does that's what it requires right it requires such extraordinary conviction um on the part of non-gold managers right because at the end of the day gold managers are already fully convinced right like i don't need to pitch somebody who's you know a gold bug on like oh well here's the attractiveness of of why you should own gold right um I, i broadly think um and and actually i think i'm gonna write my next piece uh having uh, hopefully extricated myself from some of the value debate now on the role of gold and and um, uh, hopefully it's interesting um, but I, I do think that there is th- that, that idea that you need to express such extraordinary commitment not just from the group who already owns it because they've you know they've spoken yeah. already mm-hmm. right? right exactly um, you need other people to basically buy into that and I think you're you're broadly starting to see some of those components. Um, but the other thing to remember about active managers is, is that they're benchmarked, right? And so we have built a death trap for active managers. And this is, this is part of the feedback loop that's so painful to people, right? Is if you think about my analogy of the curved surface, right? Well, the tools that we use for measuring active manager performance don't have the capability of measuring a curved surface. They're linear tools. Things like mm-hmm. alpha and beta are linear concepts. They're just literally the M in a Y equals MX plus B equation is the beta component and the B, you know, confusingly, is the alpha component, right? Mm-hmm. The intercept mm-hmm. is the alpha component. And when you're using linear tools to measure a curved surface, you get nowhere. Right? This, is, this is why Newton has become so famous, right? Calculus was developed to, to mm-hmm. analyze curved surfaces. And unfortunately for most of us in the industry, that's beyond our mathematical capability because we were far more interested in making money than pay attention in, in advanced mathematics classes. Um, you know, but that for me is, is, is the potential excitement, right? Is we're going through a phase where some really terrible stuff is happening and some really bad signals are being received and people are reacting to that in the markets. Um, the positive story to the end game is that more and more people begin to recognize this and that we are able to change the structure of markets back to what they're supposed to do, right? Which is allocate capital through the discernment of individual investors, whether they're represented by discretionary professionals or whether they are doing so on their own, right? That's the objective of of financial markets is to facilitate the formation of capital that can then pursue positive NPV projects, right? The negative is that we decide to continue to follow this path and the catastrophe becomes so large that the only solution is, is that the capital markets cease to function as we see them currently 
and the Fed is forced to step in, right? Now, we have a model for how this happened, right? Under the, the, the Nazi stock market in the 1930s, it became a symbol of national pride that their stock market would only go up. And so laws were actually passed that said you can only execute a transaction at a new all-time high price, right? Well, now, if you think about what that means, it means that literally stock markets can only go up. And so good news can be digested with a higher price, although it has to be discounted with the lack of liquidity going forward. And so what you see is a market that marches upwards with lower and lower volume and eventually gets to the point where no transactions happen because you can't sell and nobody can buy. And so capital markets cease to function. In the aftermath of World War II, when um, the Western powers invaded and recognized that in order for Germany to rebuild itself, in a productive manner, it needed access to capital markets. So the decision was made, okay, we're gonna allow prices to you know, move to the appropriate level. And in a single day, the German stock market fell 90%. Right? One day, it fell by 90%, right? That's similar to what we're setting up today. We're setting up a condition under which there is no liquidity. And it was a very real fear of mine that we would actually shut markets in March. I know there was a tremendous yeah. amount of outcry for it. Right? People are saying, just stop this. This is craziness, right? We've done it before. I think we'll end up doing it again. And at that point, then, Bill, I think you'll probably be right, right? The Fed will become the dominant feature. The government will become the dominant feature. The capital markets will cease to function. The only way anyone will obtain access to capital is by virtue of the emperor granting them a, you know, uh, a, you know, a contract or a charter that gives them exclusive access to catering the White House um, or, you know, whatever, right? That's what has happened in the past is when things become too big to fail. And that's, if there's a message that I can try to convey to people and I can try to convey in the public sphere, I don't think there's a way out of this at this stage. I think we're too far in. Prices yeah. are too far elevated relative to the underlying fundamentals. The cost to society from the loss of purchasing power associated with prices moving to their natural level is probably too chaotic and, and too catastrophic. Um, we can mitigate it if we start now. I see no evidence of that. And I would actually point out that the lobbying activity of BlackRock and Vanguard and to a lesser extent, some of the other players in the space is now so much more powerful that I can say all I want. Right? And nobody in the halls of power is ultimately going to care. There's a, a Fed paper that was written in 2018 um, by the Boston Fed that like, literally reads like a he said, she said. Right? It's, it's called, does passive investing represent a systemic risk? And it's like, here's the unnamed Mike Green point of view, and then who's the person you're going to call uh, once you've talked to Mike Green? Well, you're going to call Vanguard and BlackRock. Right. right. And Vanguard and Black are going to say, oh, that's a bunch of nonsense. No, 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 no. So yeah. It's you know, like, okay, well, this point is made. And then, well, that's a bunch of nonsense. And then this point is made. And, well, that's a bunch of nonsense. Right. I, I, I don't think there's a way out. I don't. And so, you know, I'm, I'm forced into a situation in which I, as much as I don't like the game, I had to build a vehicle to trade, you know, along with Wayne, had to build a vehicle to trade the game as it's currently constructed. And hopefully, you know, generate enough um, uh, social influence and and financial wealth that maybe I can influence it in some way going forward. But I think the prospects are low. Well, that you know that makes perfect sense. So I'm gonna give, given I have so much power, I'm gonna make you king. So if you were, so you'll have more power than Trump even. Um, so 
if you had that power, I'm being a little bit glib about this. If you had the power, how, I mean, I can see how we're past the point of no return, but people ask me this sort of thing all the time. Well, if you were running the Fed now, what would you do? And sometimes there's nothing left you can do. But if 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 you had all the power, what could we do to get us off this path, if it's even possible, to where we have sort of assured destruction at some point, we just don't win? Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, many people have talked about this sort of thing. And unfortunately, I think it's it's a, a variant of inevitability, although it just becomes a question how traumatic it is as we go through this. Um, there will be some variant of a debt jubilee, right? And... Um, <laughs> that debt jubilee can take a variety of forms, right? The way Caesar rose to power was through a debt jubilee in, in the Roman economy. Um, we, we, you know, other people have heard me say this as well, and, and, and I'm public enough now that I'm, I'm worried that I'm, my aphorisms are becoming very tired. But, you know, in, in really simple form, um, people like to say we, we live in the, in the age of, of uncertainty, right? Like that's, that's just a catch-all, right? And it's like we live in the age of uncertainty. That, that is literally the biggest pile of horse hockey that exists, right? Um, you know, we're, we're sitting in our homes that are permanent construction, you know, permanent structures. Mine is in an, in an earthquake zone, you know, and it has uh, reinforcements so that it'll survive, a, you know, a nine and a half, uh, you know, Richter scale earthquake, right? Well, that's not uncertainty. I'm not saying where am I going to wake up tomorrow? You know, what animal is going to invade my cave? What's the risk of being attacked by a bear, et cetera, right? I live in an environment of almost perfect certainty where if I were to go upstairs right now, there'd be a nice warm hop, cup of coffee waiting for me and hopefully a wife who loves me, right? Um, that security actually drives inequality. And if you simply take a game in which you flip a coin right? And, and the best illustration of this is actually the work of Ole Peters, which a lot of other people have heard me guide to um, on what's called uh, the irregularity problem in economics. He just had a paper published in Nature December of last year. Um, you know, we inhabit a world in which we've, we've adopted a Calvinist type view, right? Which is, you know, your, your empirical worth is driven by your financial success. The validity of your point of view is given by your status of standing in society, um, we all have inherent worth, right? We all have inherent worth. Some of us are more fortunate than others. Some of us are more evolutionarily adapted to the environment in which we currently exist, right? People think about evolution as progress. Evolution is not progress. Evolution is fitness within an environment, and it actually breeds its own fragility, right? If I'm a finch that happens to inhabit the, the Galapagos Islands and nobody else has a beak that's seven inches long that can reach into a particular pine cone, well, then I can grow a beak, that, a beak that is, you know, first one and a half inches, then two inches, then three inches, and eventually at seven inches, it provides a huge advantage. But if that environment changes, a seven-inch beak becomes an extraordinary disadvantage, and I go extinct almost immediately, right? What we have done is we've created a system that is so stable and where the focus itself becomes stability, right, preserving the status quo, that we've created all the problems of specialization and fragility and inequality associated with it, where very few members of our society control so much of the resources and are actually in a position to defend those resources, right? Google can buy any threat. Somebody comes up with a better search engine or a better product like Waze versus Google Maps, right? Well, what do they do? They write a $2 billion check to buy it, right? And create enough certainty for the founders of Waze that they can't turn down that check, right? 
that sort of environment needs to be disrupted. And Stan Druckenmiller had a fascinating proposal that, that you know, it's like um, on its surface, it feels like the opposite of a technocrat, right? But, but his proposal was, you know, every Fed meeting, there should be a random number generator that if it spits out a particular range, the Fed randomly raises or lowers interest rates by 25 basis points. Mm-hmm. Right. Why mm-hmm. would you do that? Well, simply yep. because it reduces people's willingness to engage in levered speculation. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are the sorts of things. Like we need to focus, and Nassim Taleb, God bless his you know, irascible and totally unenjoyable soul, you know, he, he's very focused on this idea that we need to, in some form or another, create the systems and feedback loops that cause... Um, that reduce fragility and, you know, enhance, um, you know, uh, not stability, but robustness, right? Um, And that's where we need to head to, right? Um, That's what antitrust legislation was originally designed to help do, uh, depending on how you want to think about it, right? But it's absurd that we have institutions like Vanguard and BlackRock that, that control as large of a share, particularly of the flows into American retirement savings, et cetera, and that they're not treated as systemically important financial institutions. Vanguard has no idea how to unwind. None. No. Right? And I, I publicly challenge them to debate me on this point. And I guarantee you they will not. Because they have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Right? But that's the core of the, the, the issue that we face now. It's just that you know, we, we have this misconception about how things work. And I would strongly encourage people to take a look at, at Ole Peter's work to understand that things like inheritance taxes that lead to a redistribution of resources, those actually enhance robustness. Right? When you can consolidate wealth across generations in the way that we currently do. And, and I mean, this is absurd. I work for ultra high net worth individuals, right? That's my job. And so in many ways, everything I'm saying probably feels to many of my clients that I'm advocating against their interests. But part of what I'm actually saying is, is that your interests are increasingly poorly served. Right. Being a centimillionaire in a world in which a few people are emperors or billionaires, right? Like we have these nonsense debates around who's the most powerful person in history. Well, the most, po- most powerful person is always the person who can put a gun to your head and pull the trigger, right? Or a spear to your throat or whatever, right? Like at the end of the day, the governments have become so powerful and so strong that they're able to do almost anything they want. And we're seeing that and it's fully formed, you know, format now now that we're abandoning any pretense that we actually need to pay for things. Yeah. I mean, that's what the implementation of MMT actually is. Well, uh, uh, MMT kind of coincides with you. You just hung a curveball for me or I want to hang one for you. No, no, the, the, the jet, the, the debt Jubilee concept, because it's something Grant and I have talked about. And um, it seems like I, you're one of the few people I've heard actually mention it. It's something I feel like is inevitable. It seems like Japan would be the first place, given what they've already accomplished. You spoke about the yen. You've obviously paid attention to Japan. So do you want to just give us your view on the debt jubilee and what might trip it off or kick it off? Um, well, typically what kicks off the debt jubilee is, is that there is so much societal pain associated with the repayment of debt that it is recognized you're either going to have um, a wholesale revolution at the lower level, at the lower end, or the elites have to forego some of their claims against them, 
right? And that's what a debt jubilee is, is the rich people saying, okay, we're going to forgive a certain amount of the claims held against the poor people, right? Um, and we're going to do this in the name of social stability. Now, inevitably, it happens at the barrel of a gun, right? Um, and Japan, I would agree, is probably further down this path than most other countries. The simple factor on MMT is the reason that we adopted the fictions of limitations on government financing, right? And that's what they are. They are, fi they, they are fictions, right? So MMT is an accurate description of a world in which fiat currency exists, right? In which the, there is no actual limitation that is enforced by an outside party on the government's ability to print to pay for things, right? Um, but we have avoided the implications of that because we understand that if we chose to behave in that manner, it makes the government all powerful. Yeah. Right. Everything mm -hmm. that I have saved, the billions of dollars that I have saved can be made worthless by the, in the stroke of a pen where they decide to print a quadrillion dollars. Right. Um, right. You know, the, the, the challenge for the elite, and we see this almost in its most pure form in Steve Mnuchin's, you know, half trillion dollar bailout program in which he refuses to tell us where the money was spent. Who right? Put, yeah. right. Like it, the reason the elite often resists these moves is because they think they're going to have access to that half trillion before everybody else does, right? Their connections can, can provide them with those resources. It's very seductive, right? You know, do you stand against the king if the king is going to bestow you with favors? I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. I try to play both sides if I can, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, I, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, um, MMT is you know, the recognition of MMT and the misunderstanding of, of that it's a, that it is prescriptive and that it tells us what to do as compared to what can be done is part of the problem, right? If I were to do things, I'd probably do it totally differently. And it would be almost impossible to resist the temptation to salt away a couple of billion dollars for my friends and family, right? So I'm not the right guy for the job. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I don't think there is a right person for the job. That's that's the problem at this point, right? The job has become essentially impossible. You know, we've talked for a very long time, and I apologize. I'm, no, 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 it's been, no, it's no, no, this is fascinating. No, don't apologize for anything. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, fascinating. Uh, the, what, what people tend to forget is what actually happened with the new world. Is it wasn't that it brought incredible resources, although it did, right? That's a, that's important. But more importantly, is it gave people an exit voice. It allowed people to say, I've had enough of this. If you don't treat me well, I'm going to go to the new world. Yeah. Right? And I'll take my risks with various other things, but at least I'm not going to put up with your nonsense anymore. Right? And so there is a direct line that can be drawn between the rise of the social welfare state, right? particularly in places like Scandinavia. There's actually direct um, contemporary accounts in the 1870s of newspapers writing about the challenges that industrialists were having in uh, Sweden in obtaining labor because everybody in Sweden was basically taking off and going to the new world to go hang out with their friends and family that had unlimited access to land in places like Wisconsin, right? And in response to that emigrant outflow, that exit voice, people quitting a company, which is really all a nation state is, and saying, I'm going to go work for somebody else, right? In response to that exit voice, they said, hey, wait, here's a benefit package for you right? Like they can't match this for you in America, right? We promise we'll take care of you at 65, 
right? Now, 0.1% of the population lived past 65, but at least it was something, right? We're going to protect you against the abuses of a system. We're going to offer you X, Y, Z in terms of transparency in a court system, right? We're going to introduce something that looks like the American Bill of Rights. Right? These were all actions that were taken when the elite were, had their, their feet to the fire and were functionally forced to respond to the immigration practice. They either were going to start shooting people at the border or they had to say, here's a reason to stay. Some chose to shoot and others chose to create incentives for them to stay. We don't have that anymore. Yeah. Where, I mean, I, I have this discussion with go. people in the United States regularly. Where are you going to go? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody says New Zealand, right? I say, well, New Zealand's 5 million people, right? It's an island in the South Pacific functionally, right? It exists by the graces of every other government that is willing to defend it and protect its right to, to claim those resources, right? It's not a solution. You can't pick everybody up and move there. That was what was unique about the new world. It was the first time, you know, thanks to smallpox, in which there was an extraordinary quantity of land available for individuals that had not been there before. Well, it's 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 listen. It's 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 not often you can end a podcast with a big shout out and thanks to smallpox, but we've managed to do it, which is which is, which is a first for me. I've got to say, listen, Mike, um, Bill, and I have been chatting backwards and forwards uh, for a couple of weeks while we've been talking about this. We've both been so excited, and I've got to say, you've you've exceeded our expectations. That was an extraordinary conversation, as they always are. Whenever I get a chance to sit down and talk with you, I always come away with my head spinning, and this is this is no exception. So, thank you again for being so gracious with your time. And th yeah, and thanks. I mean, that's thank you for sharing your your insights because they're particularly unique, and I think they're right on. Well, it's it's very kind of you both to say, um, Grant. You've played a, a singular role in in uh, helping me in my career, and I, I thank you both for the opportunity to speak. Well, listen. Let let the people out there listening uh, who who haven't read your stuff and, and don't know where to find it, give them give them the full uh, the full menu because they're going to want to, they're going to want to dig into all of it from now. I guarantee it. Uh, so our website is logicafunds.com, www.logicafunds.com. Uh, there you can find our white papers under our, our blog and research. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at profplum 99 and you can follow Wayne uh, at Wayne Himmelson. And, and that, now this is one thing I meant to ask you because I forgot. I, I kept meaning to ask you this. Your avatar on Twitter is Vizzini. <laughs> Vizzini for the Princess Pride. Yeah. I, I, I think I've told you this story before, but... Um, Look, in really simple terms, it, it is a reminder that often the game you think you're playing is not the game you're playing, right? And so Vicini fa you know, fancies himself the world's smartest man, you know, Galileo, Einstein, et cetera, are all morons. <laughs> morons, yeah. Um, and yet he doesn't consider that the parameters of the game include the, the condition that Wesley has uh, immunity Spike or the Dread Pirate Riots, right? <laughs> exactly, has immunity to iocane powder, and so he's playing a totally different game than Vicini thinks. And every time I've lost money of any significant quantities in my career, it's because I made an assumption about the rules of the game that did not encompass the actual parameters of the game, right? That somebody was doing something that I hadn't considered. Um, and so, you know, I, I had no idea that I was going to be well followed on Twitter. I had absolutely no idea that. Uh, I was going to be able to uh, influence people in that manner whatsoever. And Twitter has been an extraordinary platform from that standpoint. I've been very fortunate that people pay attention to my ramblings. Um, but with that said, that, that avatar is an outgrowth of that. The recognition that the real risk is that you don't understand the game being played. And I would just say that with coronavirus, by the way. Like, I have this discussion with my wife on a regular basis. So she tries to fill me in on the statistics and the data. And I'm like, look, Jen, I understand what you think you're telling me, right? 
But the incompetence that surrounds the response that we've seen tells me that there has to be a game that's being played that's different than what we think. Yeah. And so I've said this elsewhere, like, I, I think the disease is not the game. There's something else afoot. And when we figure that out, it'll all make sense. Well, I think we've we've touched on a number of potential other things that are afoot in this conversation. So I think it's incumbent upon everybody to kind of try and figure out where the roadmap leads. But again, Mike, listen, I, I love every minute I get to spend with you. And hopefully we can do it in person again soon because it's been way too long. Take care. Thanks I got, my friend. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thanks. Boom. There we go. Wow. Right? That was unbelievable. Yeah. I have never had one it's a radical idea that he has but i've never had one idea that was so radical and so different change my thinking so fast as what his did when i first started reading about it and understood what he was saying and then when i saw the paper that had the the coincidence of 1995 and that i just thought wow the the combination of the two things there has to be an overlap yeah. Um, but, but maybe it works through the, you know, the 60, 40 kind of thing, like you said, the collateral piece, but uh, I'm just blown away about how well it describes what's happened, how well it kind of fits with some of my gut feelings, probably yours as well. And, and probably there aren't very many people who understand this viewpoint. Yeah. No, it's, it's look, it, Mike, the, the, the biggest compliment I can pay Mike is that he, he's an even better man than he is a mind. And he's an extraordinary mind. I mean, he really is. I mean, I, I've, I've been fortunate, spent a fair bit of time over the last few years talking to Mike. And, and every time uh, I do that, I just, I have everything challenged, as you said. Your worldview is challenged. Everything you think you know is challenged. Um, and that's so healthy. It's had an impact on, I mean, ever since, I got that. I started thinking about, you know, my own little fish pond, the metals and miners. I thought, well, that's why they trade the way they do. And when I figured that out, I, then, then, then the non-response that you see on times, the times and yeah. the noise level, it doesn't bother me like it did before because I used to, I would think before, oh my God, I mean, does somebody really know something? I think, well, yeah. they can't really know that. And now it's like, it's just fucking noise. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, Occam's razor sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it really is. Well, that, Bill, I, all that remains is for us to thank everybody out there listening. Um, the response we had from our, our last episode with James Aitken was fantastic. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure this can be the same. But if you, if you, if you do get a chance, please, please, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes store. Um, it really helps uh, awareness. It helps us uh, climb up various charts of one form or another. We're number one in Luxembourg, Bill, apparently, I was told last week. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Ulf Smolfson <laughs> is devastated that he's been knocked off the top spot. But but, uh, but it does help more people find us um, and, and listen to this. And, and uh, if, you've, if you've been with us from the beginning of this and the last episode, you realize just how important this stuff is for people to hear and understand. So do that for us. We'll be would be much appreciated you can follow me on twitter should you wish to do so at ttmygh and i'm at fleckcap yes he is and we will see you next time once once both our brains have had a chance to, to for the fans to run them to cool down a little bit thanks for listening that was great God, that was, I was so focused.
Yeah, no, like, no. I just I just caught myself. Oh, like I mean, I was like I literally hanging on every word. Yeah, I know. It's it's. I mean, uh, it's just extraordinary. It is amazing. It really is. He's uh, <laughs> he's he's one of a kind. It has to be said. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I, I always, as I said, I've said this before, but whenever I speak to my, I, I, he simultaneously makes me feel dumber and smarter than, than before I started talking to him. You know what I mean? It's just. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. The dumber while you're going through it yeah. and the smarter after you get a chance to go listen to the replay. Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, all right, well, I mean, I'm, I'm here. We're doing the interview. And I, I can't stop myself from taking notes. Yeah. yeah not no, about I, what I want to ask him. No, about just points things to remember. And I, I kept saying to myself. Well, you can go listen to this again, but I just couldn't stop it. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. stop myself. Yeah. No, in the moment, it does that. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.